This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Presents True Crime for the Short on Time. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying, bite-sized true crime case. Before we get started, as always, Olivia, it's wonderful to see you. How have you been? How was your week? Week's been good. I'm a little short on time tonight, John, but I hope you're doing well this week. I am doing well. I am short on time as well. So we will get into it here. I know the listeners are like, come on, stop with the yada yadas, get with the murder, murder. So they're short on time too, John. I know. So that's what we're going to do. I did want to ask before we jumped in, because I know I sent you my notes. Did this case sound familiar to you at all? No, the only thing that sounds familiar is where this girl was born. But other than that, no. Okay, cool. Well, we will jump into it. I do want to give a disclaimer that when I started researching this case, I was like, oh man, this will be like a nice, quick little, it'll be a good one for the short on time. It's a little longer than I expected. So I'm going to try to get through it quickly because I know, hey, our listeners don't have a lot of time. It's a Wednesday. I got stuff to do. It's the middle of the week. So we'll try to get through it pretty quick. But what do you say? Should we just jump on into it? Yeah, let's go. Holly Maddox was born in Tyler, Texas on May 26, 1947. Her mother, Elizabeth, was a housewife and her father, Fred, was an engineer and a World War II veteran. As a teenager, Holly enjoyed art and dance. She was a cheerleader who did well in school. And Maddox had a type of ethereal beauty. She was shy, thin, and had a type of delicate quality to her. And Holly knew that she was destined for more than just the small, conservative town of Tyler, Texas. After graduating high school in 1965, Holly moved from Texas to attend Bryn Mawr University in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. In 1971, she graduated with a degree in engineering. But like many graduates, Holly didn't know what would come next. She spent time working from one job to another. And when she was 25 years old, she met a man in a restaurant. That man was Ira Samuel Einhorn. Now, Einhorn was born in Philadelphia on May 15, 1940. His father was a car salesman while his mother stayed at home. Einhorn's mother has said that they grew up as your typical, quote, Jewish family and that they loved each other very much. 
He graduated high school in 1957 and then studied at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1961, Einhorn graduated with a degree in English. He would go on to teach at his alma mater, and eventually Einhorn would also teach at Harvard. Ira was considered charming. He ran in intellectual circles and had influential friends. This even included Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. And while he never had money, he never seemed to go without. According to an article written in the Washington Post, he had a gift for taking businessmen out of their money and attractive women out of their bell-bottoms. And according to Harry Katz, a friend of Einhorn's, guys never asked girls what they thought about politics or poetry. Ira did. He feigned that he cared. So this was a guy who was very much like, oh, well, what do you think? Like, tell me your political views. What do you think about this poem? And really, it was just a way for him to get in with the ladies. Now, Ira could also be called your stereotypical hippie. He enjoyed his drugs, especially LSD. And Ira Einhorn and Holly Maddox had an instant connection. They considered themselves to both be part of the counterculture, and they didn't care for the conservatism of the 1960s. In fact, Ira led protests against the Vietnam War. He would unsuccessfully run for mayor and was very involved in environmentalism. Einhorn even helped plan the very first Earth Day. Now, shortly after meeting, the pair began to date. And only two weeks after dating, Holly moved in with Ira. But the relationship wasn't only fast, it was rocky. The couple would fight and break up constantly, only to get back together shortly after. And I don't know if you know anyone like that, Olivia. I can think of a couple of people that I know that for a long time they were like together and then broke up, then together, then broke up. Yeah. Never seems to really end well, but I didn't know if that sounded familiar to you at all. Yeah, I've, I know people who have been in relationships like that. And I've been in one of those myself. It's just not healthy in any way, shape or form. Yeah, I've been in one of those. I was like, I'll take you back. You just like emotional abuse and I'm a sucker for it. So. Mm -hmm. Now, Einhorn wanted an open relationship and Holly Maddox told friends that he had made her have sex with other people while he watched. And according to reports, there was also physical abuse involved. At one point, Holly brought Ira home to meet her family and it did not go well. Ira was rude, putting his feet on the table and he also hit on Holly's sister, Buffy. But even through all of the turmoil, the relationship continued for roughly five years. Now, in 1977, the couple took a trip to London using money that Holly had saved herself. On that trip, they were joined by Holly's sister, Buffy. And it was in London that Holly told her sister that she planned on leaving Ira for good once they arrived stateside. Her sister would be the last family member to see Holly alive. Now, at some point during the trip, Holly decided to leave early, and when she returned back to the United States, she rented an apartment in New York. She even began seeing a new man, Saul Lapidus. For Holly Maddox, this was a fresh start. Her relationship with Ira was over, and she was ready to move on. Now, on September 9th, 1977, Holly and Saul were enjoying the day together, but then Holly received a phone call. It was Ira Einhorn. He told Maddox that if she didn't come and get the items that she had left at his apartment, he would throw them all out on the street. Now, Holly really didn't want to go, and she tried to call friends who may be able to help pick up the items for her, but when she wasn't able to find someone, she agreed to come and get them. According to witness testimony, after arriving at the apartment, Ira and Holly went with another couple to see a movie, but after that, Holly would never be seen again. Now, many people believe that Holly Maddox just up and left. Besides, Ira always surrounded himself with beautiful women, and some believe that they were all interchangeable. But Holly's family believes something far more sinister had happened. 
The following month, the family failed to receive a birthday card from Holly for her mother's birthday. Worried, they contacted the Philadelphia police. Now, authorities believe that Ira may have had something to do with the disappearance, but because of his reputation in the community, they couldn't find the evidence that they needed. According to Einhorn, Holly had left to visit a co-op for groceries and she just never returned. He told Holly's family that he had received a call from her saying that she was traveling alone and again would later claim that Holly was at a spiritual retreat in India. Because of this, police quickly took their sights off of Ira Einhorn. But Holly's family kept their eyes trained. In fact, the family had hired two private detectives, one from Tyler, Texas, and one from Philadelphia. And what they found was quite disturbing. The detectives interviewed a neighbor, Mr. Paul Hare. In the fall of 1977, Hare lived in the apartment below Ira Einhorn. He recalled that on a fall evening of 1977, he remembered hearing what sounded like a woman screaming from the apartment above him. He initially didn't think much of it because parties at Einhorn's were not unusual. But then a brown substance started running down the wall in his apartment. Hare called the landlord, who then called the plumber. And according to the plumber, Einhorn would not allow him into one specific bedroom closet. Additionally, other neighbors reported a foul smell coming from Einhorn's apartment. So I just want to stop right there and kind of touch base with you because if I'm one of these private detectives, I'm going back and working through the case and I'm like, oh, there was a woman screaming and you've got this weird brownish red substance running down your wall. This guy won't let people into certain rooms of his apartment. Like my, all of my red flags would be up immediately. I didn't know what you were thinking or where you were so far. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Everything is pointing right towards Einhorn. Yeah, it's definitely not a good look. Now, it was also found that in 1978, Einhorn visited a local bookstore looking for a book on mummification. However, the owner didn't have any books on that particular subject. In early 1979, the two private detectives handed their findings over to the Philadelphia police. And the police chief at the time, Michael Chitwood, said that the report read like something from an Alfred Hitchcock movie. Armed with this information, police were able to obtain a search warrant for Einhorn's apartment. And on March 28, 1979, police entered a literal house of horror. Immediately upon entry, a foul odor was detected. And finding the source was not a hard task. They tracked the stench to a closet inside the apartment. Now, the closet itself had multiple locks on it. And when they asked Einhorn if he had a key, he just said he didn't. At that point, police used a crowbar to pry open the closet door. And inside were boxes stacked from floor to ceiling. And one of those boxes read Maddox on the side. When detectives investigated the contents of that box, they found items belonging to Holly Maddox. Now, also in this closet was a large trunk. It, too, was locked. And Einhorn again denied having a key for it. He told detectives that they would have to break it. And again, police used a crowbar. Now, when the trunk was open, they found air fresheners and newspaper that was dated between August and September of 1977. And as they continued to investigate further, a shocking discovery. A hand was reaching out from the trunk as if someone had been pushing on the lid to open it. Along with the hand, police found the rest of the body that had been hidden inside the trunk. The remains had been mummified from the heat and police knew immediately that they had found the body of Holly Maddox. Ira Einhorn was arrested and charged with murder on the spot, and it was later determined that Holly Maddox's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Now, at this point, Einhorn's trial was set to begin in 1981, and after his arrest, the community's perception of him began to shift. But Ira continued to claim that he was innocent, and his story was nothing short of odd. 
According to Einhorn, he had been framed by the CIA, the FBI, or even the KGB. He claimed to know too much about weapons development and government conspiracies. So Holly was murdered and he was set up to take the blame. But things didn't look great for Ira. He was also accused of attacking previous ex-girlfriends who tried to leave him. And when reviewing journals that they had found in his apartment, police were able to corroborate the ex's stories. These journals also showed just how dark and violent Ira Einhorn could be. Now, as a young man, Einhorn had begun to refer to himself as the unicorn, as Einhorn means one horn in German. Because of this, after his arrest, people began to refer to him as the unicorn killer. And while the community had turned on Einhorn, he still had plenty of rich friends. Because of this, Einhorn was able to make bail and was released. And in my research, I actually found that the bail for this type of crime was actually set really low, even of the time. It was a very low amount of bail, which could also indicate that maybe he had some friends in higher places. Yeah. And then he had some of his wealthy friends actually pay that bail for him to get him out. Now, again, his trial was set to start in 1981, but shortly before he disappeared. Einhorn was now on the run and multiple sightings were reported in Canada, England, Ireland and Sweden. In fact, in 1987, he married a woman named Annika Floden. In the early 90s, Einhorn shared with Annika that he was in fact a fugitive, but was innocent of the crimes that he'd been accused of. And while on the run, the couple somehow managed to stay one step ahead of authorities. But in 1992, a law was passed that allowed suspects to be tried and convicted even if they were not present. In 1993, Einhorn was tried and found guilty of the murder of Holly Maddox, even though he never stepped foot inside the courtroom or the building, which I thought was kind of crazy that you could just have a trial. If somebody escapes, if you have enough evidence, you can still be like, you're guilty. So if you come back, you're guilty. Yeah, I think that's kind of fascinating in a a sense. And I feel like... We should maybe do that more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a little iffy because you're not giving that person a chance to defend themselves. That's true. But if you're on the run, like. Right. But also in a case like this, like the body was literally found in your closet and had been there for, you know, over a year. Yeah. I'm not trying to get all political or anything, but I'm glad it happened in this case. Yeah, for sure. Now, about this time, Ira and Annika were actually living in France under assumed identities. And at the time, Richard D. Benedetto was an investigator with the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Now, D. Benedetto refused to give up the search. The year that Einhorn escaped, D. Benedetto had become a father for the first time. And because of this, he felt that the Maddox family deserved justice. Now, between Holly's murder and 1993, The Maddox family just continued to suffer tragedies. Fred, Holly's father, had committed suicide. And Elizabeth, Holly's mother, had actually died of emphysema in 1990. That's awful. Yeah, and they died without Einhorn being convicted, without being in a jail cell, anything like that. You know, it wasn't until 93 that he was convicted without even being there. You know what I mean? Yeah, so they never got their closure. They have their closure now, but... Yeah. And you just can't, I can't imagine how hard that is for a family. You know what I mean? Right. Where, you know, this is the guy that did it and he's been seen in London and in Ireland. And so he's off like living his best life and you're dealing with the grief of what he's done. You know, it's just, it's terribly heartbreaking. But because of that, D. Benedetto was going to do anything that he could to catch their daughter's killer. He continued to work the case, interviewing friends and exes of Einhorns. Now, one of these friends was Eugene Milan, a bookstore owner. 
In May of 1997, which is 20 years after the murder, Benedetto got a tip about Einhorn's whereabouts. Apparently, his wife Annika had applied for a French driver's license under the name Annika Floden Milan. Benedetto immediately recognized the name and assumed Einhorn had stolen the identity of his former friend. Because of this, he reached out to the French police as quickly as possible. And on the morning of June 13, 1997, French police arrested the now 57-year-old Ira Einhorn. Now, at the time of his arrest, he claimed to be Eugene Milan, but fingerprints later verified his true identity. And just when they thought that they had gotten their man, another snag. French law stated that a person couldn't be extradited to another country if they've been charged and convicted without being present. Okay, so the French just have this law conveniently saying that he can't be extradited if he wasn't there to like say his piece. Yeah, so they have their own judicial system that they have to work through. And sometimes if their laws kind of contradict ours or there's certain places that just don't do extradition at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you hear those a lot, like in like crime shows and stuff where they're like, I'm headed to wherever they don't extradite. You know what I mean? Right. But yeah, their laws were just different. And because of that, Einhorn would actually need to be granted a new trial. Also, France didn't have the death penalty. So if you were to be extradited, the death penalty would have to be off the table in the United States because they're like, we're not going to send somebody back to you if you're going to kill them because we don't do that here. Right. That makes sense. I almost wonder if he knew to go to France because of these rules. That's possible. You know, he wasn't a dumb guy. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So at this point, a new trial would have to be held in France. And in July of 1999, the court ruled that Ira Einhorn would be extradited back to the United States. Now, the night of the ruling, Ira attempted suicide by slitting his own throat, but was unsuccessful. And in fact, the next day, Ira Einhorn was back in the United States. Jeez. They weren't playing any games. They were like, we're getting you back. We've been chasing you for 20 years. His new trial was scheduled to begin in September of 2002. Now, Einhorn maintained his innocence, saying that he didn't know how the body of Holly Maddox arrived in his apartment. And another thing that I thought was really interesting was that his wife, Annika, stood by him metaphorically throughout this whole ordeal. You know, she very much was a believer that he was innocent, but she didn't leave France. She was like, if I come over there, I may get charged for aiding and abetting like a federal fugitive or, mm-hmm. you know, the public just may hate me for standing by this murderer. So like, I love you, babe. I'm in France, but you know, you've got my, you've, you've got my emotional support, which I don't know how yeah. helpful that is, but France is probably safer. It will eventually die down over there. Yeah, and she was never charged with anything or anything of that nature, which is interesting because, you know, she was trying to get a French driver's license under like a stolen identity and stuff like that. So it's from what I could tell, she never got charged with anything, but it was a little surprising. Now, on October 18th, 2002, Ira Einhorn was found guilty of the murder of Holly Maddox and sentenced to life in prison without parole. And even though her parents had passed, Holly finally got the justice that she deserved. So that's this week's case. Like I said, I know it's a little bit longer than our normal short on time, but where are you at, Olivia? What are you thinking? What's going through your head? This one's a crazy one. I mean, it's sad it took so long for them to like really convict him of murder, but I just don't get why someone would mummify somebody. And like, how did he think he was going to get away with that for so long? Did you say mummify? Mummify. Mummify. <laughs> mummify. 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 Somebody would mummify. <laughs> Mummified. Oh, mummified. 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 What did yeah. I say? Mummified. 
I'm going to mummify. Who's going to mummify that man? Yeah, I definitely think there were some mental health issues. I also read in my research that like he had considered asking someone to help him move the trunk to like try to dispose of it, but he was paranoid that like the government was watching him, which is probably a side effect of like doing crazy amounts of LSD. And these type of cases are always a little weird for me because it was very similar, I think, to the San Francisco witch killers, where like there was a part of my life where I really like romanticized like the 60s and like this counterculture and the flower child. I was like, oh, that must have been like such a cool place to live and like what a great time, you know, to be on the the edge of all this change. And then we started right. doing this podcast. And I'm like, oh no, people just get murdered. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> so, but it's just sad, you know, like this girl, from all accounts, she was just this beautiful woman with her whole life ahead of her. You know, she Mm -hmm. graduated from Bryn Mawr. She had a degree in engineering. You know, she was looking to start her life over and and just had all this promise and prospect. And, you know, because somebody's just done one too many hits of acid and is jealous, you know, something like this has to happen. So it's, I don't know, it's crazy. Yeah, it's wild. It was a good one, though. I'm going to put it on up there. Well, hit me with it. Where are we putting it on the dead bull test? I'm going to go with the seven. I think there's some sort of like sociopath, psychopath underlie in this, whether it be mental illness developed from too much LSD or I don't know. There was some sort of weird. You don't just mummify your friend. Yeah. And I can see, too, I think my perspective on it is a little bit different, you know, as a as a married man, I could see as like a single woman why this would hit different for you than it would for me because the whole, the whole thing, like even though there's all like the, the drugs and the, like he's running in these, you know, beatnik circles and he's got these influential friends. It's still just a case of like a jealous boyfriend. You know what I mean? Like you break up this person. If I can't have you, no one's going to have you. You know what I mean? And so that makes a lot of sense. I think for me, I'm probably going to put this at a, four or five, maybe it's a, it's a really interesting story. And I think the jet setting part and like all the years that it took to catch this guy to that finally. reminds me of like a Jeffrey Epstein, like that portion of the story reminds me of that. Yeah. Yeah. Where you just got means that you're like, how did you get this? Yeah. You know? How'd you get away with this for so long? Yeah. I, I don't know for me, I'm not worried about something like this happening to me, but like, it's just sad. This woman had her whole life ahead of her, you know, and just because she got involved with one shady guy, like everything was taken away, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'll put it at five. I'll give it around five. I'll come in a little bit lower than you. All right. Well, it was a good one. It wasn't quite short on time, but it was a really good one. Yeah, it was a little bit longer than I expected. So hopefully the listeners aren't angry at me, but I apologize. Like I said, I started looking into it and I was like, oh, this is too long. But I was like, I don't have time to research anything else. So, <laughs> so you're getting a, a not so short on time. But that is where we fall on the deadbolt test for this week. Olivia is putting this at a seven. I'm coming in at a five. But as always, we want to know, where does the murder of Holly Maddox fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We would love to interact and get to know you. So join that Facebook group. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do that by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Sign up today. We got a lot of great tiers. We got exclusive stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff just for being a patron. So if you like what we do, you want to help line our pockets, keep the show going, keep the lights on. That is the best way to do that. And if you can't financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening, hanging out with us every week and sharing what we do with your friends and family 
means just as much, if not more. So from the bottom of our hearts, if you are listening every week, you're telling your friends, hey, tune in this quirky little podcast, you know, that just means the absolute world to us. We are trying to get out in front of as many people as we can, grow our audience, grow our family. So if that is you, thank you so much for doing that. That is all that we've got for you for this week, but please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We'll see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying, bite-sized true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Bye-bye.